0: As I was starting this series a few weeks ago, I bumped into one of the young people just before the first service, and he said, Joe, you're looking smart this evening, um, which is obviously unusual. And um, I said to him, oh, I'm involved in the service. He said, are you leading? I said, no, I'm preaching. Um, He laughed. And he said, oh, come on, seriously, Joe, what are you doing? And I said, no, no, I'm preaching. He says, does that mean we get to play some games? So especially for him this evening, we're going to play Simon Says um, to start off with. So Simon Says, touch your head. Simon says, point to the left. Simon says, point to the right. Touch your nose. Touch your ears. I've got most of you out there. (laughs) Brilliant. Obviously, Simon says it's not a game for us as a congregation to strive for excellence at. But Simon says it's one of those strange games, isn't it? Um, I don't know who Simon was uh, and what kind of um, despot he was. that He demanded everybody do everything he says. Um, Simon says... And you do it. And I guess um, Nebuchadnezzar is very similar to Simon. And what Neb says goes. If Neb says you do it, then you do it. I don't know who it is who dictates your worship. Who dictates your worship? Everyone in the world wants to tell us to worship. Something or someone. If it's L'Oreal, L'Oreal says... You're worth it. Worship yourself. Maybe it's your friends. They want you to worship them. They want you to do everything they do, don't they? It's quite subtle often. And maybe it's your parents. Get A stars. Worship your greats. There's a whole world that longs for us to worship something or someone. Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego knew exactly what that's like. Neb says, worship. And if Neb says it, you do it. Just look at verse 1. If you turn up in your Bibles to page 886. Verse 1. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. And maybe Neb was inspired by his dream last week of the, the statue, and uh, the huge statue with a gold head, silver, bronze, iron and clay. Um, he obviously didn't quite get the point, did he? Because the statue, well, it ended up being... Blown away. But he obviously is inspired by the dream. So he thinks, oh, I know, good idea, good dream. Let's build a statue. Three score, cubit high. Um, not words I'm familiar with. Even feet for someone my age is difficult to comprehend. Um, so if you like me, thinking um, double-decker buses. It's three double-decker buses high. Maybe that'll be in a new version of the Bible coming out soon. And this statue is not subtle in any way, is it? It's on a plane, it's flat, and there's this massive statue... Three double-decker buses high. And we're not even sure what it's for. Um, It might be a Babylonian god. It might be Nebuchadnezzar. It might be some kind of statue which represents Babylonian culture. We're just not told. Um, So maybe it's a bit like the Statue of Liberty representing the American dream. But there it stands, in the middle of the people. It's big, it's brash, and it demands your attention. And then verse 4, the herald loudly proclaimed... This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Neb says, fall down and worship. Everyone, everywhere is commanded to do it. There's a wonderful orchestra of all kinds of odd instruments, and as soon as they play, you're to fall down. And it's kind of a bit funny. I mean, I don't even notice as the reading was read, the repetition of all these silly instruments, the sackbutt, What could that possibly be? Everyone can see this is kind of stupid. It would be almost hilarious, I reckon, if it wasn't for verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. If you don't bow down, there are consequences. Being burnt alive. Neb says, worship. So what happens, verse 7? Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations and men of every language, fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Unsurprisingly, everyone hits the deck. They all worship. neb worship and everyone does it. It didn't even matter whether these people believed in this so-called Babylonian God or even Babylonian culture. It didn't matter. Everyone from the greatest to the least worshipped Because if Neb wants you to do something, you do it. I think bowing down to the statue wasn't so much about worshipping a god as it's keeping on the right side of Neb. Getting away from the consequences of not doing it. The fear of standing out literally is what made people hit the floor. The fear of standing out, literally, is what made people hit the floor. I guess it's the same for us, isn't it? The consequences are real. Uh, imagine, for instance, if you decided to give up your nice, comfortable home here in Fortwood. Um You got rid of your nice car, your nice television, your nice holidays, and stopped living in the west side of Sheffield and live somewhere else, and you told your friends that you'd done that, they would think you'd gone mad, absolutely mad. They'd probably laugh at you, think you'd need to be taken to some kind of asylum. And that's sort of a little bit of what's going on, isn't it? It's a consequence of radical living for Jesus. Now, the flames in this chapter are real, which is why, verse 7, as soon as people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, men of every nation and language... Bow down and worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I don't know about you, but my worship is goes two ways. Some of it goes towards God, and lots of it lies elsewhere. Lots of it lies elsewhere. See, fear of standing out keeps me silent so often amongst my friends. We've probably all been there, haven't we, on the Monday morning, back at the office or back at school. Or down the pub with friends, and the question comes, Oh, what did you do at the weekend? Um, I often start off with Saturday. Oh, Saturday, yeah, I went to Forge Down for breakfast, met up with some friends, played tennis, went to a friend, some friends around the evening. Oh, and Sunday, I went to church. The pressure to not say anything, to keep silent. I guess we've all been there, haven't we? We're embarrassed, perhaps. We think our friends will think we're a bigot. I think we're stupid. You still go to church? Joe, you're 27. And you think about Christians around the world who, if they go to church on the Sunday, they could be arrested and thrown into prison. How tempting to stay at home. You see, the consequences of us are probably quite minor, aren't they? And my friends might laugh at me. and They might leave me out of their friendship group. Uh, But for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, there are flames. And that is true for many Christians around the world today. Uh, We're scared of the consequences. I know I am. And in some sense, this fear isn't stupid. uh, Because they are real consequences, aren't they? There is a real cost to following Jesus. The flames in this chapter are real the consequences for standing out for God are threatening everywhere. And the flames that we'll all face are here to stay. They're not going to go away. If anything, it's going to get worse, isn't it, in our country? Which is why we're so tempted in verse 7 to do the same as the people. As soon as we hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, we're tempted to worship the image of gold that has been set up. Now, whatever it is, whatever it is you worship, it's probably because you fear the consequences of not. But there are free people who literally stand out. Free people. And they are dragged before Neb. And Neb is like is astonished at their failure to comply. He said, do it. He said, worship. And they've stood up. They've not bowed down. So verse 14, he says to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? The gauntlet has been thrown down, hasn't it? Who can possibly rescue Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego from a king such as this, a tyrant like Neb, who would in an instant chop you into pieces or throw you into a burning furnace? Who's possibly going to able to rescue us from a world so opposed to God? It's no wonder we so readily comply, isn't it, with the world around us. Yet Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego stand out before the furnace. Standing out before the furnace. It's amazing. What could make these three young Jewish exiles, all less than 20, stand up when everyone else hits the ground? Everyone else joins in. Everyone else falls down. They must have been tempted. What kind of God must they trust in that will enable them to stand up? Well, let's see verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O King. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What a speech. Right before the flames in front of this king who would happily throw them into the flames, they trust in the reality we've been looking at over the last two weeks. They know that God is in control and he is good. And they know from the dream that God gave Neb last week that he has an eternal kingdom that will go on forever. Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego never lose sight of reality. They know that their God can rescue them from the, from the flames. But even if he doesn't, they're still going to worship him, whatever the cost. This is what it looks like to know reality and trust in God. You see, if God has an eternal kingdom set up, an eternal kingdom then you can give him your life now, knowing he has it secure for all eternity. If our lives are safe with him, in his hands, then we can give them up, can't we? One day we'll be in his kingdom that goes on forever. My temptation is so often to kind of barter with God. Uh, I'll trust you, God, if you remove this painful trial from me. I'll trust you if you heal me. If you give me a better job. If you you give me a life partner. If you, you give me more friends. If you stop people laughing at me. Then I'll trust you, God. We try to barter with Him, don't we? If you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. But that is not the way it works. If we know reality, if we know God, then we will trust Him despite the painful and fiery trials. And indeed, even more than that, we can trust him in the painful and fiery trials, whether he removes them or not. Romans says the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego trust in God's big plans for the world's future, so they trust him in the present. The gauntlet is thrown down. Neb says, What God can save you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say their God can. And so, verse 19, Neb goes mental. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Is not looking good. But here is another amazing reality. That God doesn't uh, remove the furnace. He's going to save them in the furnace. So finally, the Son of God, in the furnace, just look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement. And he asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Free go into the furnace, and yet one extra one appears with them. A new image, if you like. One not of gold, not worshipped by force on the plain, but one like a son of God in the furnace. This is amazing, isn't it? The Son of God, God enters with his people into the furnace. And if the Son of God is with you in the furnace, then nothing can touch you. We're presented here with a Son of God who enters into his people's suffering. And this both shows us how God saves and where he is in our pain and persecution. So how does God save? Well, here we're given a wonderful picture of the gospel. The fourth person in the furnace is described as a son of God. And also, if you look with me at verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. This seems to be the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament seems to speak for God and be kind of referred to as God in the Old Testament, interestingly. And he's addressed as such by key figures in the Old Testament and God himself. I think this fourth person may well be the second person of the Trinity. The fourth person is God himself in the furnace. So I think we can be quite sure what this is trying to tell us. This is a picture of how God saves. Ultimately, it points us towards Jesus, the Son of God, who enters into and suffers for his people. Fire in the Bible is often a picture of God's judgment. Just in in chapter 7 of Daniel, the Ancient of Days comes with fiery judgment. This is a picture of how God can save people like you and me from the fire of God's judgment. Jesus enters into the flames of God's judgment on the cross, if you like, so that we can escape. Or his verse, The second half of verse 27 says, it says that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. God's fiery, deserved judgment will not touch us because it consumed him, the Son of God. He stands in the fire and faces it for us so that we might have life. This is how God saves. He doesn't remove the flames, he enters into them on our behalf. And that's what we're going to remember tonight as we receive bread and wine. His body and his blood given for us for forgiveness. Forgiveness for worshipping the way the world works. You see, only trusting in that can get us into his kingdom, his eternal kingdom which we thought about last week. But that's not all this incredible thing shows us. It shows us where Jesus is in our pain and persecution. I was remembering back to um, primary school uh, just this afternoon and thinking of some of the songs we used to sing at school. And um, this is one you may remember. When I needed a neighbour, were you there? Were you there? When I needed a neighbour, were you there? And so on. I'm not going to keep singing, I'm dreadful at um, the the It kind of goes on and on. It goes, um, when I was hungry and thirsty, were you there? Were you there? When I was cold and naked. Were you there? Were you there? Uh, when I needed shelter, were you there? Were you there? And the song kind of concludes, "I'll be with you when you travel." It's a very strange song. <laughs> but the whole point of the song is—they seem to be questioning. Um, this person in the song seems to be suffering to some extent, and he asked this question: "Were you there?" And the song has no conclusions about who he's on about. But this picture that we see right here, this reality of the furnace, shows us right where Jesus is in our pain and persecution. Not only did he suffer first so that he can bring us through God's judgment safely, but he is right there with us in all our pain and our persecution. He's right with his people in the furnace. He is not distant. When we're in those times of pain and persecution, we can so often think he has left us. But the reality is he is right there with us in the midst of our pain and suffering. He is in the furnace and he is in the furnaces of our lives with us to carry us free. He says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Always. How are we going to stand out in a world that is opposed to God? How are we going to only worship Jesus and no one else? Well, it's the realities that Daniel is showing us. It's that Jesus is in control and he is good. He's not a tyrant, he's a servant. He's establishing a kingdom that will endure forever. He has made the way into the kingdom clear through his death on a cross. And he is with us every step of the way in our pain and persecution. Our saviour knows what it's like to suffer. He's been there, he's been through it. He not only is with us, but he understands. And if we grasp this, then that will enable us to keep trusting in a world that looks out of control. He is with us. The Son of God we worship is fully worthy of our worship, is he not? He's ruling the universe. He knows the end from the beginning. He's setting up his eternal kingdom. He's stepped into our world. He's gone through the pain of the cross. And he is with us in our pain and persecution. Jesus says, trust me. Trust me with your life that you would give it up. Trust me because I have an eternal kingdom waiting for you. Trust me because I am with you whatever you're going through. We should trust him. Not just because he says so, but because he's fully trustworthy. And he's shown it to us again and again and again. So let me pray that we would. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we are not alone. We thank you for this chapter of your word which shows us we can trust you whatever happens because you are with us always to the very end of the age. Help us to trust you with our lives that we would be prepared to give them up. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm going to encourage you to keep thinking about some of the stuff we've talked about.